Listening to you there, Tom, reminded me, uh, I was at university, um, the boss of the college, I think it was called a warden, um, was a man called Sir Maurice Bowerer, who had the most extraordinary way of speaking that anyone has ever spoken, um, and he was a classicist. He, he wrote a book called um, Primitive Song, which I think he always used to refer to as Primitive Sin. That was the way he spoke. Ook. He used to speak along like that, and at the end of the sentence... It went down and then came up again. The last time I saw him, we passed each other in what's called a quadrangle. And he walked past me and he said, working? And I said, well, no, not actually. And then he said, thinking? And I said, no, not really. He said, I've completely lost the capacity to do either. Anyway, that's not the bit that reminded me, just to give you a, a sample of his voice. You'll notice I'm playing with my voice at this point. I don't need to explain that. Um, and that Tom reminded me of a, a great Bowerism. He was known for many famous uh, sayings of one sort or another, was that he heard about a couple who had just got married, and he said, lovely couple, slept with them both. <laughs> anyway. Um, so that was uh, <laughs> Sir Maurice Bowerer. And uh, you'll see what I did there was that I heard the story that Tom told, and what I've done is tell another story. This is what we do. So this, I'm talking today about play and why I love it and why it's so important and why it makes us feel good. And we all play. I'm not going to stand here in front of you and say you don't. I'm just going to say just the opposite, that we all play, but we can do a bit more of it if we develop certain things when we play. And what I just did then, which we all do, is you hear a story think about another story, and you say it. And what you're doing when you do that is playing with what you've just heard. You mix the things you, that you've just heard with the things in your mind. It's a form of daydreaming. And somehow or other, these things rise to the surface, and you actually make a little bit of categorizing. You actually say, well, there was something in the thing that Tom was saying, probably to do with sex, to do with sex in both and several directions at the same time, or maybe separately. Maybe there was something also in what Flo was saying. Um, I wasn't going to talk about dick pics, but there you go. Um, and somehow or other, what rose to the surface, in which I then captured and performed for you, was something to do with Sir Morris. So that, we, that kind of play that we do quite naturally as, it, as we grow up and learn how to do it. And when I say we learn how to do it, sometimes people say to me, well, how did you get into this interest in play, and I think about my parents. So if I just give you a little, a little picture, if you like, of my mum, all right, so uh, it's 1960. It's 1960, those of you who remember 1960 um, will remember that there was a typhoid outbreak. There was a typhoid outbreak in South America. I don't know why I'm laughing, because it was probably not very nice to be in South America at the time. Uh, the bit that was quite funny was the fact that they absolutely went bananas in Britain at the time because we import beef, particularly from Argentina. And so everywhere they were putting up signs saying, don't eat the corned beef. Whatever you do, don't eat Frey Bentos. No corned beef. Okay, so it was everywhere, radio, tele, whatever. No corned beef. My mum, she goes to the cupboard, opens the cupboard, it's stacked up with corned beef cans. Okay, she takes one out and goes, ooh, better not open that till the typhoid outbreak's over. Puts it back. <laughs> and I, 
I remember looking across at my mum, I'm 14 at the time, and I'm just going, Mum, um, the, the, but I couldn't, I couldn't find the words <laughs> to see, and then she looked at her and said, what, what was the matter, what was the matter? And I, even now, don't know, I'm pretty sure she was playing. That was what my mum did. So to give you another idea, so she would burst into um, my brother, my, uh, my bedroom. My mother, uh, her first language was Yiddish, which uh, language of Eastern European Jews. And uh, it just surfaced every now and then. You never quite knew when it would come out. And then you never knew when I was very young what was English and what was Yiddish. So she would burst into our bedroom and say, this place is a Mishadamonk. And we said, what's a Mishadamonk? She'd say, this place, and walk out. And I realized that she was using words to, 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 to play with us like that. My father, on the other hand, was slightly different. He was a storyteller. He loved, loved telling stories. And um, I, I noticed as I, as I was growing up that actually his stories started from something that seemed quite true. He'd, he would take the everyday, and then they turned into, uh, I suppose, well, I suppose you could call them lies, really. Um, LAUGHTER so uh, imagine, uh, if you like, a camping holiday on the North York Moors. Why are we camping on the North York Moors? Uh, my parents had at some point or another been communists, and I think they thought that it was a sort of communist thing to go camping. I don't know whether... <laughs> I don't remember that Marx wrote about camping. I don't remember a bit where he's explaining about surplus value, little footnote, and go camping. I don't... I don't... <laughs> And also, I don't, I don't remember that he said anything particular about the fact that when you go camping, that you must go somewhere where it rains a lot. So we always used to go to either the North York Moors or the Welsh Borders, where, of course, it rained a lot. And on one occasion, one of these holidays, uh, my dad, uh, my brother, actually, said that he, he was a little bit fed up with it raining all the time. He was going to go to France. He was a bit older than me. And uh, so he was to be about 16 or 17. So he said he was going to go to France. He was going to go home first, pick up the keys, and go home, uh, go, go on to France. And then off he went. He went to, down to the station. We said goodbye to him. Uh, and, and off he went. And then my mum... I just after he'd gone, said, oh, my God, I've got the key from home. I've got the key. Oh, what are we going to do? And my father said, don't worry, we'll drive the car. And it was the first car we'd ever had. Drive the car to Pickering and we'll catch up with him. Now, that makes my father sound like a kind of manic road hog. Uh, he wasn't at all. He was a mixture between so, Isaiah Berlin and Lenny Bruce. And um, if that means anything to you, I don't think it does. That's all right. And um, Lenny Bruce said quite, fuck quite a lot. And Isaiah Berlin talked about philosophy and history. So if it's fucking philosophy, then you'd get an image of my dad. Yeah, I don't think he actually fucked philosophy. No, as far as I know, he only fucked my... Anyway, no, anyway we won't go there. That's back with you, Flo. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we jumped in the car and we drove. And as we were driving along, he said, I hope we catch up, I hope we catch up. We got to the station, Pickering Station, and then he dashed down the platform... And he had the key in his hand, and he was looking for my brother, and he said, great, there you go, Brian. And then he handed over the key, and my brother said, well, I don't know why you did that. I was, I was going to get the key from Mrs. Townsend anyway. And my dad went, God, egocentric bastard. Anyway, so that was the end of it. And then I watched my dad over the next two years tell that story, and it got longer and longer, and he added all sorts of bits. So the bit where we were driving to catch up with the train was over the moors. And he turned it into the fact that he was driving, and every now and then he'd turn over, he'd look over his shoulder, and he'd go, Mick, Mick, can you see the train? And, you know, Mick said, yes, I can see it. But like, fuck, I'd seen it. I hadn't seen it at all. 
He said, yeah, I can see it, I can see it. Harold, we weren't, uh, Harold I had to call him. We weren't allowed to call him Dad, because that would be bourgeois. Okay, so... <laughs> though, interestingly, we were allowed to call Mum, Mum. So you can put that together. There's women in the room, aren't there? You can put that together. Anyway, so, um, so he said, can you see the face? Yep, and that's what Mick did. And then when I got to the station, I ran down the platform and I said, stop the train! He hadn't done anything of the sort. He hadn't said that. And I remember looking at my dad thinking, where did, where, where's that from? How did he do that? And then I put it together that that's what he'd done. He'd played with the story. So when we heard Louise earlier today, that wonderful account of how she built up that story, she had daydreamed and played with it in order to create this story, which sounds by all accounts to be wonderful. But we heard an account of playing. And each one of these people, when we heard Dylan talking about the Wichita line man. We were hearing about his play with that song, but also, of course, the writer and indeed the singer. So all of us play. We've heard examples of play this evening. What do I actually mean by play? What definition of it? The definition I use is trial and error without fear of failure. That is my core definition of play. So I mean it differently from game playing. I mean it where you actually can invent the rules yourself, where you can free flow with ideas one way or another, but the key thing is you do not fear failure. All right, so when I, I happen to watch a team that is called Arsenal and um, the hope that kills. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but my son, he says to me, Dad, let's go and play football. Now, we use the same word, but when he says, let's play football, well, that's one aside, right? Yes? I don't know whether that means anything to you. But anyway, so you have 11 aside in football, but when we play it, it's only one aside. So we have to make up different rules. So we have to decide whether we're going to play three goals and in. We have to decide what we're going to do for goalposts if we're on a beach. Do we use my jacket? Do we use some stones? And then we have to make up things in order to make that work for ourselves in that moment. And that's what I mean, that's my core idea, if you like, behind play. And my argument is that it is wonderful. It's wonderful for us as individuals, it's wonderful for us as we explore things, but also it's actually behind the whole of art and indeed at the core of an enormous amount of science. You only have to think of the invention of electricity and you think of the people first involved in discovering that you could create current. So you take the people like Galvani and Volta, and indeed Michael Faraday, not far away from here, sitting in the back of a publisher's shop, playing around with coins and uh, salty water, working out whether you could create a current. And indeed, go back to Galvani in 1800, one of the ways in which he found out that you could create current was he put two bits of metal on either side of his tongue and a little bit of wire between it, and that it tasted salty. These kinds of play are at the core of this building, of the light that we're getting, but indeed in all of art that we know, and in all of indeed enormous amount of our thought at the core of it is play. So for me, that's very important, and indeed, as we've got a few minutes, I thought we'd have a little bit of play right now. So if we could bring up the lights, please, that would be fun. All right. This won't hurt, I promise you. I can see there's a sort of little look of trepidation on some people's faces. I know what he's going to do. He's going to make me do an improv. He's going to make me come out here like that Conti woman with the puppets. No, it's not going to be anything like that. You're just going to do a lovely little bit of fun that Anthony Brown 
the wonderful illustrator, writer of wonderful books like Gorilla, um, that I don't know whether you know, uh, wonderful, wonderful writer, uh, creator of children's books. Uh, it's the shape game. So what you're going to do is you're going to draw on a piece of paper, you're going to let the pencil draw a line for you, all right? So just simply take, take your pencil and draw a line all over the paper. You know, it could be plenty of space on it. Just draw a line, let it run all over the piece of paper. There you go. And fine. And then now you're going to pass it to the person next to you. And that person is going to take what you've drawn and see whether you can do whatever you want with it. You could make it into a face, a creature. You could create a pattern. You could do all sorts of little things in the spaces that are created. You can add doodles. You can take doodles away, if you like. But use the, the shape that that person has given you to make something else. And that is at the core of play and indeed of art and an enormous amount of science. It's called transforming your sources. And that's not... No, no, we won't go. Silly joke. Okay, so it's about transforming the sources. So you take that shape and you can do anything. And, you know, again, back to... Di no, 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 don't talk about it. Um, thank you, Flo. Um, and so anything at all. And you can play with that. And do anything you want with it. A face or a creature. You don't have to be figurative. You can be abstract with it. You can think Rothko. You could think Louise Bourgeois. You can think whoever you like. And when you think you've finished, and things don't have to finish when you play, is you can pass it back to the person who did the first shape and see what they think of it. Tell each other what you think of it. And I'll interrupt you and say you've just... I said to you at the beginning, it was trial and error without fear of failure. It's exactly what you've done. I can't see any failure around in the room or fear of failure. You've had fun, which is another great thing about play. You've also socialized. You may have met somebody that you didn't know before. On the other hand, you may have confirmed all your prejudices. Uh, <laughs> But also you've done something else. I use the phrase transform your sources. What you've done in a tiny, tiny bit of a way is you've changed something. You've changed some little thing about the world. So instead of accepting the world as it is, as it is given, you've actually done something new. So you took something that was given, namely what your colleague next to you gave you, and you've transformed it, and then you've passed it back, and that person's had a think about what you've done, and you've had a little bit of a think about what you've done, and so on, and what you were given, and so the world in a tiny way has changed. We're living in very, very unpredictable and changeable times. Um, by the way, the December the 12th vote was thrown out this evening while we've been sitting here, just in case you wondered. All right, so there's another example of unpredictable times. Indeed, we can battle with the unpredictability, with knowledge and with things that we need, but one of the things we need to, have, need to know and need to be able to do in these unpredictable, changeable and possibly very dangerous times is to know how to improvise, to know how to think on our feet and to know how to transform our sources. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having me.